friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. Conversations with Consequences is part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our radio show is always a podcast, and you can listen by going to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts, or you can just go directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. Thank you for joining us again this week on Conversations with Consequences. This month is National Adoption Month. One of my favorite things is adoption. It's given my husband and I our fifth child, uh, a wonderful, wonderful girl who is a blessing to everyone who knows her. We'll be chatting with Elizabeth Kirk at the bottom of the hour about adoption and barriers to adoption and the culture of adoption. But first, we're delighted to have Dr. Scott Hahn with us. He is the Father Michael Scanlon Professor of Biblical Theology at the Franciscan University of Steubenville and founder and president of the St. Paul Center. We will be talking to Dr. Hahn about his book, that is recently published called Holy Is His Name. Welcome to the show, Dr. Han. It's great to be with you, Gracie. Maybe it's great for you, but it's a huge honor for us to have uh, the great Dr. Scott Hahn on. You've been on before. We admire very much here at the Catholic Association your work and evangelism. Me personally, what I really love about your work is the way that you're able to bring us poor, unliterary Catholics, the the beauty of the scripture and the way you bring that alive for us, because very often we don't have a firm grasp the way our Protestant brothers and sisters do on the, the depth and breadth uh, of the scripture and God's word. Well, I'm grateful for that. You know, here I am in the St. Paul Center studios, and we exist for the very purpose of imparting biblical literacy to Catholic laypeople, as well as biblical fluency for our clergy and for our educators. But since it is the case that we're Catholics, the Mass is obviously the main event, and it will be for as long as Earth survives, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and as a result, you step back and you realize, okay, you can always quote from the Catechism, but the only thing that you have to read in every Mass, and then here expounded, is sacred scripture. And so biblical illiteracy is something that we can ill afford. And I just think that Catholics since since the 60s and 70s with the new lectionary, we're exposed to 400% more of the Old Testament, and it's always coordinating the Old and the New every Sunday and feast day. And so it doesn't take that much to get Catholics to the level of at least introductory biblical literacy. And so that's really what is running throughout all of my books, beginning with Rome's Sweet Home and A Father Keeps His Promises. And I can draw a kind of narrative arc from the Lamb Supper and Hail Holy Queen to this one, Holy is His Name, uh, because we trace the development of the notion of holiness, not only through salvation history from the old to the new, but also we trace the idea of holiness as we develop and mature spiritually as Catholic Christians. In your new book, Holy is His Name, which I highly recommend to our listeners, you trace the concept, the word holiness, the, the definition of holiness. You start with the very beginning, you start with Genesis, and then you bring us through the Old Testament of to the New Testament, and, and you, you teach us how the word holiness and the concept of holiness was just in the Holy Land. And, um, and I had a very strong feeling there. It's my second visit, and I, I had it even more strongly, how important it is to understand our older brothers, the, the Jews, and the way that God drew our salvation right through them and to us and to all of us and then opened it to the whole world. 
So I love that your book starts, Holy is His Name, with the very first idea of holiness. Uh, remind me the word, the Jewish word, kadash, I think it is. Okay, explain to our listeners, please, how God exhibits first the idea of holiness, how He first starts to transmit it in the Old Testament. Well, I'm glad you're asking about first principles, because that's where we need to begin. Mm -hmm. And we need to proceed by kind of taking baby steps. I mean, at the most basic level, we recognize what is the will of God for us? Well, you know, a lot of people get really worked up about, you know, God, what is your will for my spouse, for my career, for my college major? Mm -hmm. St. Paul simplifies it in a very profound way. In First Thessalonians, we read, for this is the will of God for you, namely your holiness, mm -hmm. your sanctification. That captures the notion as it was in the beginning, but it's also moving from the old to the new. There in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, but likewise, I'm thinking of another baby step. Hebrews 12, 14, strive for holiness, for without it, no one will see God. And so ever since Vatican II has sort of universalized the idea of the universal call to holiness, every single person was made for one ultimate goal, and that is to become a saint. And when you trace that all the way back to the beginning, you realize that our first father was endowed with the breath of God, the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. In Genesis 2, we find this. So in Genesis 1, God creates all things, and then he sanctifies this on the seventh day, as we read in Genesis 2, verse 3, where Kadosh occurs for the first time in the Old Testament. But it's a curious thing because it's the only time holiness occurs in all 50 chapters of Genesis. There at the very beginning, when God sanctifies the seventh day, thus the Sabbath, thus the sign of the covenant, thus the whole purpose for creating man in his image and likeness, male and female. And so the idea of holiness describes the communion for which we were made to be in relation to God, but also to be in relation to one another, especially, you know, our first father's spouse. And so four verses later in Genesis 2, verse 7, God breathes into Adam's nostrils the breath of life, and that's how man became a living being. So in addition to oxygen, he's breathing the breath of God. In addition to natural life that he has in body and soul, he has supernatural life. In his soul, this is the Holy Spirit. And so this is the mystery of faith that our first father possessed briefly. But as you continue reading 10 verses later in Genesis 2 verse 17, the Lord God invites the man to partake of all of the fruit of all of the trees except one, and then issues the stern warning, the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. But then when you continue reading in the next chapter, they went ahead and they ate, and they didn't drop dead. Well, they didn't die physically, but they did die spiritually. This is what the meaning of mortal sin is all about. In 1 John 5, 16, there is some sin which is not mortal. It's venial. It only wounds and weakens us. But there is a sin which is mortal. It's the same Greek word as what we find in Genesis 2.17. Our first parents committed spiritual suicide, or what the catechism calls the death of the soul. It isn't a metaphorical death. To lose divine life is more of a death than to lose human life. And so the loss of sanctifying grace, the loss of holiness, basically is a catastrophe. And the catastrophic consequences of that explain why does holiness not occur anywhere else in all of Genesis. Now, 
No one's described as righteous. But what you discover in studying the Bible and the Hebrew terms, righteousness is something that we usually identify as being the same as holiness. But no, that's not the case. Righteousness, zadik, zedakah, is not the same as kedushah or kadosh. Uh, you know, righteousness, justice, holiness, sanctity are inseparable. But as we trace the development of these terms throughout the Old Testament and throughout salvation history, you're going to end up discovering that justice is basically the uh, the jurisdiction of the king, whereas holiness is the province of the priest in the temple and the sanctuary, the holy of holies. And you should distinguish those without confusing them, but you distinguish them also without uh, opposing them. Uh, many people are righteous, and yet holiness has not yet been restored. And what is holiness? It's that direct access to God that Adam forfeited when he was expelled from uh, the garden sanctuary. He's not just the first human, he's the high priest of humanity, and he's desecrated the sanctuary of the garden. And so as you continue reading, and you move from Genesis to Exodus, as you were indicating, Gracie, just a few minutes ago, you discover a kind of progressive revelation. Namely, there's an explosion of holiness in the book of Exodus, where the word occurs like 98 times in just 40 chapters. And it starts off with, Moses, take your shoes off for the ground that you stand on is holy ground. And you were just in the holy land. And so there really is a sense in which holiness is reintroduced with a sort of gentle force for Moses. And the idea of holiness is often described, for example, I cite um, Professor Rudolf Otto, a classic book that's been out now over a century. In 1970, this German Protestant wrote a book called Das Heilige. It was translated as The Idea of the Holy. I read it back in the 70s. And what it describes is holiness as the mysterium tremendum et fascinans. It is a mystery, and it fascinates us like it did for Moses. He sees a bush that is burning and yet not consumed, and yet it terrifies also. So it's a mysterium tremendum et fascinans. It causes us to tremble. And, and this is what I think people need because, you know, I, I begin the book by hearkening back to my own conversion as a young teenager in the early 70s when, you know, Jesus was the friend. And, and that's obviously true. But there was this kind of chummy relationship with God where, where, where God's agape is just so unconditional. We called it sloppy agape because, you know, it just wasn't demanding at all. And yet the holiness of God causes us to tremble. And without holiness within ourselves, we can't ever see God. It's the will of God, namely our holiness, our sanctification. And so in Exodus, you see the holy ground, you see the holy altar, the holy ark, the holy tent, the holy sacrifices, the holy feasts. All of these things are called holy. I list over a dozen items. But what's striking is the only thing that is not called holy is Aaron, the high priest. He's called to holiness. He wears on his forehead, holy to the Lord, but he isn't holy. And I'm sort of like, you know, uh, bemused by this, but it's baffling. And so as you continue reading in Leviticus, you know, the holiness of the priests, they are to distinguish between the holy and the uh, common, as well as the clean and the unclean, these different categories that we could talk about later on, 
But it took a rabbi, a rabbi Joshua Berman, who just made a comment. I'm a friends, uh, friends with him, and he and he makes a comment in his book on the temple that, in contrast to the New Testament, back in the Hebrew Bible, nobody is ever referred to as a saint. And like, well, Noah, Abraham, Moses, no, they're righteous. They're fulfilling the commandments in a certain way, but they have not been restored to holiness in the most definitive way. Okay, seriously? Nobody's called a saint in the Old Testament? Oh, no, that's a feature that you find throughout the New, he points out. Okay, so I found the exception. I found that he was wrong, you know. In Daniel 7, there is a a passage in the Hebrew Bible where you have people referred to as saints. But then I realized, wait a minute, that's Daniel 7. We're in verse 13. It's only after the Son of Man comes, dies, rises, and ascends to heaven, riding on the clouds of glory, where he's presented to the Ancient of Days, the Father, who confers upon him this worldwide everlasting kingdom. And then in the second half of Daniel 7, the Son of Man turns around and confers that kingdom upon the saints of the Most High. But only after they suffer, only after great endurance and hardship. And then I'm like, actually, that's the exception that proves the rule, because that's not describing actual Old Testament people. It's pointing to the consequences of what happens when the Son of Man enters into the Paschal Mystery and rises in glory and he gives to us what he always possessed us as the son of God. And it's like, wow, what we have been taking for granted. What I never noticed, even though it was hiding in plain view, was the eruption of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, you know, where Jesus is referred to as the Holy One of Israel, the Holy One of God. And then after the resurrection, in I think it's Matthew 27, verses 51 and 52, we have this description of after Jesus' resurrection, how the tombs of the saints in the Old Testament were opened, and for a brief period, the inhabitants of Jerusalem see these Old Testament saints wandering around, and then they're gone. Well, what happens? The Son of Man ascends on the clouds of glory to the Ancient of Days, and as Paul says in Ephesians 4, he took captivity captive. He had descended into Hades to deliver all of the souls of the faithful departed of the Old Testament, and he raises them up, and they ascend with him so that Jesus' ascension is not like a solo flight. No, he's going up to heaven for the purpose of repopulating heaven with all of these saints. And it's like, okay, yeah, because in the Old Testament, when you hear the Sanctus, holy, 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 in Isaiah 6, the seraphim alone are singing it, and heaven is populated exclusively by angels. Whereas in the New Testament, after Jesus' ascension, not only do you have the saints singing the holy, holy, holy there in Revelation 4, verse 8, along with the angels, but the martyrs as well as the elders and all of the faithful. And it's sort of like, well, what difference does the incarnation make? Not only does it make all the difference in the world, it basically brings about a new world, a new creation. But it's not just for those up in heaven. You know, as Paul reminds the Corinthians, even though they were baby believers, you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified. In 1 Corinthians 6.11, okay, so through the water of baptism, you're washed, but you're also thereby sanctified? Yeah, sanctifying grace through the power of the Holy Spirit, comes back to the soul so that we are supernaturally resurrected 
say more than Lazarus was, who was only naturally resurrected. He got his body back that's natural and human, but we got life back that was supernatural and divine. And we don't really realize or appreciate what sanctifying grace is and why Paul can refer to the saints in Corinth or Ephesus or Thessalonica or Rome and all of these other places because it's up in heaven, but there is one church, one the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, is not Catholic in the sense of international or global. It's Catholic in the sense of universal. The church up in heaven is not some older denomination than the Catholic Church on earth. The Catholic Church includes them, essentially, but also us, as well as the church in purgatory, as they're being sanctified through their suffering. And what difference it makes when you discover that God alone is holy, but he's made us for one purpose. And our purpose alone is to become holy. Now, we can become righteous on our own. We can become bigger and better citizens of Israel or America by keeping the commandments. But the Ten Commandments are divided up into two parts. The first table consists of commandments one, two, and three. The second table of commandments four through ten And those have to do with our human relations. So honor your father and mother, don't kill and all of that. Whereas the first three commandments refer to sanctification. That is, have no other gods before him. Don't take his name in vain. And remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The only time holiness occurs in the Decalogue is when it's talking about how God through worship, draws us into his own holiness. We are sons, daughters, manservants, and maidservants, and so on and so forth. And so it makes total sense of what Jesus said. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's holiness. To worship the Holy One with all of your being is the only way he can do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, and that is make us holy. And then with that power of the Holy Spirit, We can fulfill the commandments, the rest of the law. It's almost like a cross. The vertical beam is the first three commandments, the love of God above self. That's holiness. Then the horizontal bar of the cross pertains to our own human relations, beginning with parents, but neighbors and everybody else, whereby we are able to achieve justice as good citizens. But ultimately, everything depends upon allowing God to open up our heart and fill it with the Holy Spirit. And not just at the moment of our baptism, but the coming of the Holy Spirit is a constant experience that we should have as we grow up, just as babies must develop from infancy through childhood to adolescence and adulthood. So we must be sanctified as infants, as children of God, but ultimately achieve that adolescence, but a truly adulthood where we mature as sons and daughters of God. And when you put it out, like I'm trying to do in this book, Holy is His Name, not only does it make total sense, but it's like irresistible. It's sort of like the burning bush that fascinated Moses, but it's not terrifying us so much anymore because God is not out to kind of just scare us. Yet at the same time, you can see that when John, the beloved disciple who reclined on Jesus' breast when the Holy Eucharist was instituted, when John sees Jesus in heaven in the opening vision of the book of Revelation, he fell at his feet as though dead because of the holiness of Jesus. And Jesus doesn't say, oh, come on, John, get over yourself. You know, you used to lean on me. 
No. He says, do not be afraid. I have conquered death. And so John gets up and records all of the visions of the saints in heaven for us on earth to become saints and to unite our hearts in worship with them in heaven. But, you know, at one point, or I should say at one level, working on this book for years, it exploded my brain. It was like, wow, this is amazing. And yet at the same time, it ignites a fire in our hearts so that we can say, like the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, did not our hearts burn within us as the scriptures were opened up? And then our hearts are burning, but our eyes are open in the breaking of the Eucharistic bread, the Holy Eucharist. It's sort of like, well, come on, that's the main event, obviously. In Vatican II, um, we received a universal call to holiness, and that was that was the big takeaway, I think, from Vatican II, which we've maybe failed to put into into effect as, as well as we could have, that universal call to holiness makes a lot more sense to me, having read your book, because holiness, we, we tend to think, as you say yourself in the, in the preface of your book, we tend to stay at a very low level of what holiness could mean. We think of it as being good and being kind and never having an irascible temper and yelling at our husbands. But holiness Holiness is a histor- is a salvation history experience that we have to understand from the very beginning what God is trying to achieve within us. And I, and I, I think I understood. Let me let me go through what, what what I understood, and you tell me if I'm I'm on I'm on track in my Bible illiteracy, my relative Bible illiteracy, that God is God creates man and and God walks with man in the evening in the garden, and, and they exist in communion. So man, in a way, is already participating in the holiness of God. Adam is holy until he makes that horrible act of spiritual suicide, him and his, and his wife Eve. And then God reestablishes the idea of holiness in man with kedosh, or kedosh as, and reestablishes that idea of the distinctness and the separateness, that there are things that are separate and distinct and set apart for, that belong to God. Right? So he starts to train us up. And then with Jesus, we are ready to be grafted onto the tree of holiness. And, and through the sacraments, then holiness becomes something, we, we are back, we're able again to participate in that communion with God because Jesus opens up that, that fountain again by conquering death and through the sacraments. That, does that, is that making sense? Did I, did yeah, I understand it? summary. Yeah, that's very accurate. You know, you remind me of um, how it is that our first parents were given the Holy Spirit and then commit mortal sin. And this is what we call original sin, which they committed, but that we contract. So original sin for Catholics is not being born depraved the way Luther and Calvin thought of it as Protestants, but it is being born deprived, deprived of the divine life that our first Mm -hmm. parents had and then forfeited. The results of that that inheritance, we contract original sin when we get human nature devoid of divine nature. The result is a kind of uh, disordered human human nature. We call it concupiscence, which is the result of original sin. But Protestants equated the two. They basically collapsed the one into the other in a way that we do not. So baptism overcomes original sin by filling us with holiness, mm-hmm. sanctifying grace. But we still have to battle concupiscence, and this is what we call holy war. The conquest of the promised land for Israel was not about the, you know, pain in the size of New Jersey. It's a symbol, it's a geographical sign of heaven that we can only conquer through holiness. 
And so, you know, you see what our first parents forfeited. You also see how God offers that to Israel. When they arrive at Mount Sinai, God says, if you hear my voice, if you keep my covenant, you will be a holy nation. Kadosh, again, you will be a kingdom of priests. So not a kingdom of colonels and generals, but a kingdom of priests because your reign will be through holiness. But if and only if you hear my voice and keep my covenant, which they don't do by worshiping the golden calf, they fell as hard as our first father did. The rabbis used to say that what the forbidden fruit was to Adam, the golden calf was for Israel. And so what does Christ do? Well, he's the new Adam. He brings in a new covenant that results in a new creation and ultimately in a new heaven and a new earth. But he's also the fulfillment of Israel. As the lion of the tribe of Judah, the king of Israel, you can see why Peter, in referring to believers who have been baptized, he says, we are a holy nation. We are a kingdom of priests. So what was a conditional offer to Israel back at Sinai that they failed to obtain is exactly what God confers upon us. And that's the key. As you were just mentioning there, Gracie, the holiness of God, you know, God alone is holy. And so if we are called to be holy and discover that God alone is holy, then what we can do is to kind of dispose ourselves to receive something that is beyond ourselves. Best definition that I came across, and I begin the book with this, is what I find in the Catechism, paragraph 2809, where holiness is defined in this way. The holiness of God is the inaccessible center of his eternal mystery. And the idea that it's inaccessible is important because it's sort of like what the Holy of Holies was in the Jerusalem temple. It's off limits. Even the high priest can't just kind of go in there every day. He's only allowed in briefly one day out of the year, the Day of Atonement, and he's only allowed in on Yom Kippur to quickly offer sacrifice of the blood of bulls and goats, and then he has to exit quickly. And it's like, wow. But then it goes on to say, what is revealed of God's holiness in creation and history, this is what scripture calls glory, the radiance of his majesty. And this is what he confers upon us. The bottom line is this, that if holiness is proper to God alone, and yet it's the only thing for which we were made, then holiness is not just about earning his favor, making ourselves bigger and better by our own power. It's really about becoming smaller and closer to our Lord. Smaller like John the Baptist. He must increase, I must decrease, and closer like the Blessed Virgin and like the beloved disciple. And once we realize this, we realize that the path to holiness might feel like a steep ascent, but in a certain sense, it really is its God's responsibility to do for us what we can't do for ourselves and to empower us to say yes at every moment, but mo mostly yes in the little deeds of every day. Jesus sanctified work because he worked. And so a lot of love in the little things is precisely how we grow in holiness. Those are beautiful words to end on. I'm sorry we're out of time. Makes our feeble attempts make more sense because God will, he will complete his work in us. And, and, I, I, and I think that's a beautiful way to think about it. I recommend to all our listeners Dr. Han's new book, Holy is His Name. Thank you so much, Dr. Han, for joining us today and for all the lovely work that you do for so many. You're most welcome, Gracie, but thank you for the opportunity to share this conversation. Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we welcome back to the show Elizabeth Kirk. 
She is the director of Center of the Center for Law and the Human Person at Catholic University of America, and she's also an associate scholar for the Charlotte Lozier Institute. Welcome back to the show, Elizabeth. Thanks so much for having me. You've been on before, and we've had wonderful conversations about adoption. You and I are both adoptive moms, and we and and we're uh, acknowledging that this month is National Adoption Month. Adoption mm-hmm. is is a beautiful solution for lots of different uh, problems uh, that occur uh, in life and, and when children when children come along. And uh, it's it's one that I know, in my opinion, and I think in yours, is is one that. Um, that's not as as widely available as it ought to be and as easily accessible and and maybe also as prized and as honored as as we wish it were yes that's right um i think it's an interesting dynamic actually that adoption as an institution is one that most americans you know the vast majority of americans say that they admire they think it's a noble institution uh, that has a um, important goal, which is you know finding a family for uh, a child who needs one. Um, but the reality is that adoption, you know, especially vis-a-vis abortion, is rarely chosen. Um, mm-hmm. We know that the s- statistics are that for every one infant placed for adoption at birth, uh, fifty are aborted. Um, That's a so, shocking, um, a shocking statistic. Yeah, it really is. And I think, you know, there are a lot of complex factors that, you know, impact women's decision making. It's something I spend a lot of time in my work trying to do. It's something that is especially, you know, a kind of pressing challenge post Dobbs to think about mm-hmm. uh, how we might um, help more women to see adoption as a meaningful option for an unexpected pregnancy. So you you mentioned that in your work you've 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 looked at these obstacles that that we find to adoption to to placing children for adoption to choosing adoption instead of abortion for instance can you name a couple that that are especially compelling or do you, or or that you think are especially uh, foundational uh, to this issue Yeah I think I think in terms of women's decision making again I think it's complicated but I think there's a number of things that we can kind of point to one is I do think despite the fact that there's a very pro-adoption general sentiment among Americans, I think that there's this kind of subtle or soft anti-adoption bias. Um, And I think that women who are facing unexpected pregnancies feel that. Uh, One study I read, just a quick story, uh, was of a young woman who told her you know, her housemate, she was living in a maternity home that she was planning to parent. And when she, but she was secretly making an adoption plan. And when she came home from the hospital without her baby, she told her housemates that DCF, you know, child welfare had taken her child for suspected abuse because she thought that was a more acceptable story than admitting that she had placed her child for adoption. So I think there, there is this, this anti-adoption bias. You know, many people report that they feel there's a kind of shame associated with it. There's a narrative of ab- abandonment that, you know, placing a child for adoption is, is unnatural or something a bad mother would do. Uh, there's also a lack of education. Many people conflate adoption with the foster care system. And so they think that placing a child for adoption means their child will go into the system and they don't realize that they have agency, that they get to pick the parents who will take their child home from the hospital, that it's not at all connected with the child welfare system. 
so, so these are some of the things that I think impact women's decision making. Do you think there's think, an element of sorry. of women um, mothers feeling um, a fear that they will worry about the child for the rest of of their lives, not knowing um, if the child is happy or unhappy? And I know that that's a that's a that's a strange thing to think about when you're when the other option is to end the child's life. But maybe that seems safer in a sense for them. I do think it's that's the case. I think there's two things going on there. One is, you know, there's again a, a kind of lack of understanding of contemporary practices of adoption. So they're they're thinking of a kind of former way where a child was whisked away. They didn't know what happened to it. They didn't know how it was doing. That couldn't be farther from the truth about contemporary practices of adoption where open adoption is the norm, uh, you know, rather than the kind of secrecy and shame. But I think, you know, your point raises a kind of deeper thing, which is I, I do think some women are meant, you know, probably all women, of course, um, do have a sort of um, it, it, abortion just seems like an easier uh, option, right? Because it, it resolves the situation. She doesn't have to be pregnant. She doesn't sort of have to a- admit or acknowledge her motherhood. Mm-hmm. And adoption, you know, of course, doesn't take that away. Abortion doesn't either, as we know. But um, in the moment, it seems like an easier option for women. Yeah, I, I think maybe giving birth, um, having that whole long pregnancy and giving birth at the time may feel to the woman that it leaves more, many more scars upon her or many, many more signs of her motherhood that an abortion seems like something you, you've erased the, the issue. While you and I both know, having worked with women who've been hurt by, by abortion, that the marks that abortion leaves might be less visible to the outside uh, viewer, but inside are very, very, very strong and very deep, no, on the woman who suffers an abortion. That's right. And I think, and the other piece of that is is perhaps not really realizing the healing potential that adoption has, um, mm-hmm. you know, in contrast. I think many women, um, especially women who, uh, you know, do do kind of take ownership and agency and are able to kind of see distinctly the good of their child as opposed to their own good and, and choose adoption, like they, there's you know, they have a kind of greater sense of, of peace about their decision, um, as difficult as, as we have to admit that it is in, in the moment. What about adoption culture? What about the culture uh, out in society that supports the idea of adoption? Um, I, we, we alluded to that already, but uh, for instance, when I went to adopt um, our daughter from China, we, I went in a big adoption group, and everyone else in the group, almost everyone else in the group, were couples who were uh, very uh, Christian, Protestant Christians, and had come to this uh, decision with um, a lot, like a lot of support from their parish. I guess it's not a parish, from their church community, mm-hmm. uh, and from from the from their um, from from their tradition, from their Christian tradition. Uh, that's a beautiful, I thought that that was a beautiful thing, something I didn't really experience as a Catholic. Uh, I came to it uh, with a sense of vocation, but in a much more private way. Yeah, I mean, I I do think, I mean, we see this especially, I think, in foster care that that churches and faith communities play an, an incredibly important role in recruiting and retaining foster and adoptive parents. And um, in some ways, this is just kind of natural because churches themselves are communities, right? And adoptive families often, especially if they're adopting older children or children with special needs or 
um, children who've experienced trauma. Um, they they need those kind of wraparound services and, and communities of support. And churches are, are sort of, you know, <laughs> ready to, to do that. That's, a, that's exactly what they do. Um, and so I do think there's, for many, and, and Christians in particular, I think there's a strong connection between so many of the beautiful teachings of our faith, right? We're all saved uh, in a certain sense by through adoption as sons and daughters of God. And so we have this beautiful way of speaking about it. But I think in general, there the, again, I think there's this um, very strong uh, public perception of adoption. And so it's something that's it's respected. Uh, it's just really not chosen very often, either by women or, or by people who welcome children into their family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I when my husband and I adopted, we didn't see we didn't receive a lot of support really uh, from from our what from our circles of acquaintance and 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 friends, and and some and even I, yeah. and some were yeah. even negative about it uh, for, for something that we felt was uh, sort of a win 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 <laughs> for our family for the child for for society, uh, but we didn't feel that kind of support, and it's troubled me ever since, and and it troubles me because I would like. I would like there to be a lot of support in everyone's hearts for for this beautiful um, solution to some of the world's greatest problems. Yeah, well, I do. I think I agree that that for many people that what I call the kind of soft bias, you know, they say it's this beautiful thing. And many, you know, as adoptive parents, I, I often hear, oh, you're so generous. You know, like we, we performed this great act of charity. Um, and, you know, and it, that itself reveals a kind of... Um, implicit bias that there's something sort of strange about adoption, right? Um, and and again, I mean, I think the statistics are something like only 2% of Americans actually do adopt children. So even if people give lip service to it being a good institution, there is this dynamic where it's often thought of as a kind of second best mm-hmm. solution. Well, and even we know that many, many couples would love to adopt, but the children just are not available. Or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the children are available, but they're in the foster care system or available in ways that the couples who are searching for children don't find uh, to be their path. Yeah, I mean, I think for for newborns, the the ratio is flipped. I mean, there's something like 40 families waiting for every available newborn. And, you know, I think there we have we have to see the impact of abortion. Right. Mm -hmm. If a million children are being aborted, we you know, there's plenty of families waiting in line to adopt each one of those children. Um, in foster care, of course, there are children waiting to be adopted. Um, and so, but there, you know, it, we, I think we can lament that, but there are two different situations. I think it's not difficult to understand, especially given the lack of support you mentioned, why many prospective adoptive parents who feel able to welcome a newborn don't feel able to welcome an older child who bears the trauma of neglect or abuse or who's been bouncing around the foster care system for years. Mm-hmm. What about, and what about racial differences? Many couples are um, scared of adopting across racial lines. What do you think, how, how big do you think that impact is? Yeah, I mean, I think th- this is a question and I think, uh, you know, it's, it's something that, uh, is is quite delicate in certain communities and we see that certain communities you know simply do not place children for adoption at all um because it's it's seen as the sort of dilution of ethnicity or or you know traditions and culture um you know my perspective really is is that you know 
children who need a family need a family, <laughs> you know. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I while I think it's important to honor any adopted child's heritage and you know ethnic traditions, and I think those are beautiful things. I mean, I have a daughter who's part Finnish, <laughs> um, really? you know, and and we lo- read fairy tales from Finland together to, to honor that part of her, you know, biological history. Um, so, but I, but I think it's something that adoptive parents need to be aware of, but I don't think it should ever limit the available um, loving or safe home for a child. Mm-hmm. No, I, I completely agree with you. It's uh, I, I'm, I'm always saddened when I see the, the those racial barriers uh, pop up and sometimes from the side of the adoption Um, authorities or the adoption agencies, right? As it um, as, as it seems to me unfortunate, because as you say, the children when a child needs a home, that child needs a family, and and it, the, those racial differences shouldn't shouldn't stop us, even though they are real and they they do have consequences, as I've experienced in my own life my, with my Chinese daughter, in a minor sense, but I imagine that as she grows older, those things will be more. Um, Will, will come more to the forefront for us. Elizabeth, you recently published a, a paper with the Lozier Institute on the role of adoption in these in this time post jobs. Can you tell us about that and what was the what was the point of your of your research and paper? Sure. So you know, adoption does have a kind of a renewed vigor or application post jobs. We don't yet know the impact of Dobbs on women's decision makings, whether they'll simply travel, you know, to regimes that protect abortion access or whether they'll uh, choose to continue a pregnancy. But it's, I think it's worth talking about the role that adoption can play. And so what I did in this in this paper is just to recommend a number of pro-adoption initiatives that could be appropriate for either the federal legislature or states to consider Uh, that would promote adoption. So some uh, examples would be enhancing the adoption tax credit, which, of course, makes it, you know, benefits adopted parents um, by by defraying the exorbitant costs of adoption. But it can also benefit um, the birth mother indirectly, um, you know, by by allowing some of her expenses to be covered uh, and just sending a strong public message that we think adoption is something that's good. Um, other ideas that I suggested were like um, funding options counseling. So making sure that all of those medical professionals, hospitals, pregnancy resource centers are adequately trained to inform and support women who might want to learn about an adoption plan. Uh, you and I just, you know, we also talked about support services. I think funding post-adoption support services for both birth parents and adoptive parents, you know, acknowledging Adoption doesn't end at placement. It's a lifetime connection, and birth parents and adoptive parents continue to need support as they navigate um, a lifetime with that with that child. So there, there's a number of different, uh, you know, uh, those are just some of them that I recommended. Well, let me ask you: if a woman, uh, a young woman, especially, is contemplating abortion versus adoption, how does she know what to do next? Like, where does she find that information, and is that something that that could be facilitated legally? on a state-by-state basis or federally? Yeah, I mean, the legal it varies by state, but, but you know, the one, one thing I would, one organization that I think very highly of is called, um, is called uh, Brave Love. And, you know, it's, it's bravelove.org, I think, is, is their website. And they do a tremendous job of 
of informing women about what adoption involves. They have many, many beautiful video testimonies of women who have chosen adoption and what it's like for them. They have support groups around the country. And so it might be just a good entry in a kind of non-threatening um, way to learn more about adoption uh, and, and then to find somebody in your state or your you know community uh, that facilitates adoptions. What a wonderful title, uh, I mean, uh, name for that organization, right? Brave Love. It is, a, it is a very brave love that gives birth instead of aborts. And maybe yeah, getting yeah, absolutely maybe getting braver every day, right? <laughs> the more the the abortion um, juggernaut keeps keeps rolling along. Yeah. Um, how absolutely. wonderful! How wonderful that 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 exists. That your work exists, Elizabeth. Thank you for joining us today on Conversations with Consequences. Elizabeth yeah, is thank the, you so much for having me. Elizabeth is the director of uh, the Center for Law and the Human Person at Catholic University of America and an associate scholar for the Charlotte Lozier Institute. Thanks for doing uh, this. Uh, thanks for talking to me about adoption during National Adoption Month. Thank you. Take care. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy for me to be with you. As we enter into the consequential conversation Christ the King wants to have with each of us this Sunday, as we celebrate the last Sunday of the liturgical year, and in so many ways the culmination of everything we have marked up until now, it's the goal of Advent and Christmas, Lent and Easter, Pentecost and Corpus Christi, and of all the Sundays and feasts throughout the year. They have all pointed to this reality, that Christ is the King of the universe, the Lord of all, the judge of the living and the dead. All of time, all of history is heading toward this climax when Christ will be revealed to people of every race, nation, and religion as the universal King of Kings. This feast is relatively young. It was instituted only 97 years ago by Pope Pius XI during the 1925 Jubilee at the request of many bishops and faithful from around the globe in response to a militant atheism that was trying to repress belief in Christ and suppress Christian presence in the world. Just eight years earlier, Bolshevik communism had begun to show its evil head and was seeking to free the people from the opium of faith in God. In Mexico, there had been a revolution against the old order. One of the first results was anti-clerical persecution based on a similar militant atheism. The church needed to go underground. Catholic priests like Blessed Miguel Pro, whose feast we will celebrate on Wednesday, risked their lives and donned various disguises to try to bring the sacraments to all in need. After Blessed Miguel was arrested and hastily brought before the firing squad, he pronounced as the soldiers raised their rifles and took aim his emphatic valedictory. Viva Cristo Rey, he screamed. Long live Christ the King. Christ the King. The last thing that Jesus seemed at the moment that Blessed Miguel was murdered was to be reigning. But in fact, he was, even though it didn't correspond to anyone's idea of what a king's reign would look like. Similarly, when Jesus inaugurated his kingdom, it had nothing to do with anyone's expectations either. The last thing Jesus looked like as he hung upon the cross on Good Friday was a king. He was bathed in blood, not clothed in royal purple. He was hammered to a cross, not seated on a throne. He was crowned with thorns, not with gold and diadems. 
To ridicule him and humiliate the Jews, Pilate had ordered that an inscription in three languages be placed above his head, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Rather than pay him homage, most in the crowd mocked him. The chief priests mocked him. The Roman soldiers and passers-by mocked him. Even the thieves crucified with him mocked him. And they all derided him in the same way. If you are truly the King of the Jews, the Messiah, the Christ, come down from that cross and save yourself. Such visible force was the only demonstration of kingly power they could comprehend. And a crucifixion would be proof that he was precisely not the long-awaited Messiah King for whom they had been waiting for centuries. The Jews anticipated that when the son of David came, he would rule in the way that his ancestor David had ruled. He would use his power to subjugate all those who made themselves his adversaries and not take their abuse and die a horrible death to save his abusers. They were totally unprepared for a king who would serve at all, not to mention serve to the point of death. The Romans were likewise unprepared for a king like Jesus. When Pontius Pilate interrogated Jesus, he asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingship were of this world, my servants would be fighting that I not be handed over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate retorted, So you are a king. Jesus replied by describing more specifically what type of king he was and what type of kingdom he was establishing. You say that I'm a king. For this I was born. For this I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. The Romans thought that kingship meant having the power to crucify or pardon. They thought it was associated with force. Jesus said it was associated with truth and that the meek would inherit the earth. Even the apostles had a false idea about the kingdom and what it meant to be of the king's service. We see throughout the gospel that they were constantly competing against each other for the greatest positions in the messianic administration they imagined Jesus was about to inaugurate. Jesus used it as a lesson, however, saying, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is Jesus' kingdom. To enter into his kingdom with him, to be his right hand, to be his cabinet ministers, means to be willing to give our life as a ransom for God and others, to serve rather than be served, to give rather than get. Jesus' true regality, however, was not lost on everyone. After initially joining in the mocking of Jesus, the criminal on Jesus' right, at arguably the worst moment of his up-to-then bad life, during his excruciatingly painful execution, had a change of heart. He now began to see what up until that point he had missed, namely, how special the one being crucified beside him really was. The good thief could understand his own body, the incredible biting pain Jesus would have been experiencing a few feet away. And yet he could see that in Jesus, that pain had not gained the upper hand. He was able to glimpse that for Jesus, terrain is to serve, terrain is to love, terrain is to give witness to the truth, terrain is to forgive. The good saw that love, mercy, service, and truth incarnate was triumphing beside him. He grasped that he grasped what almost everyone else was missing, that Jesus mysteriously through suffering and death was not about to lose a kingdom, but to establish one. He wasn't about to experience an ignominious defeat, but a glorious triumph. Therefore, with faith, he turned to the malefactor in the middle, who would breathe his last before even the good thief would, 
and humbly begged, Jesus, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. He was asking a dying man to remember him, something that would only be possible if the thief realized the dying man would somehow still be alive and capable of remembering. And the king turned to him and promised that he would do more than remember. With a largesse befitting the most magnanimous monarch, he declared that he would take him with himself into the eternal kingdom of paradise. We learn a valuable lesson here. The ancient Christians used to say, Reniavit alinio Deus, God reigns from the cross. To say, thy kingdom come, to seek to enter his kingdom, is to resolve to pay him true homage on his throne, to pick up our own cross and follow him, to make our life a true sacrifice out of love for God and others, and so to reign with him alinio. It's to live in the truth of his kingdom. It's to learn how to serve others and give our life as a ransom to set others free from slavery. It's to live with the courage that befits the kingdom and be willing to suffer if we have to. Just like Christ the King suffered on the cross, just like so many martyrs have with him. So we prepare on Sunday to receive Christ the King within. We turn to him and ask what St. Thomas Aquinas put on our lips in one of his most famous Eucharistic hymns. Peto quod petivit latro penitens. I ask for what the good thief asked. To be with Jesus, not only in paradise, but in a loving communion that begins now. And so we say together, Viva Cristo Rey. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy, and you go with our prayers. 